You know, every Sunday we pray during our pastoral prayer, we lift up requests, and there's oftentimes that we see very clear and obvious answers to those prayer requests, and I think it's important to draw attention to those when we do see answers to those prayers. And I, I want to welcome back uh, Luke and Miranda Hennig. It's so good to have you back. Luke, we were praying for you and your heart surgery that you had up in, in Michigan just before Thanksgiving. We're so thankful to see you've recovered well. Looking at you, we'd probably have no idea you went through such a serious surgery, and it's good to have you and Miranda back this morning. Love you all. Thankful to have you here at church. Well, as we come to hear the Lord's Word, let's bow. Let's pray once more. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to freely gather and to worship you, to consider your Word this morning. We thank you for preserving your Word for us to read and to hear preached this morning. We thank you for the abundant resources you've given us that we can sit and read in our native language for most of us, Lord, as we consider here the truth of your word and the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray you'd open up our hearts to receive this good news this morning. Lord, we pray we'd be encouraged and comforted in our faith. We, we pray as a church that you would grow us in, in our certainty of your goodness and your grace and your love shown through Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the privilege it is to preach your word and pray for your help this morning to faithfully preach your word, preach in a manner that's worthy of you, Lord, to give you honor and glory, to preach joyfully that you might use this to bring yourself glory and to bring us joy in your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, have you ever had an experience where you've been waiting a long time for someone to arrive? Maybe you had it circled on your calendar. You were, you were waiting, someone was yet to come, and you were making preparations for them to come. You were excited, you were anticipating, thinking through everything you would do when, when they get there. Maybe for some of you, that was one of your kids coming back home from college. You've missed them. You can't wait to have them back in the house again. You're thinking about making their favorite dishes or going out to their favorite restaurants to have a good time. Uh, maybe that was even this weekend. Uh, welcoming family members for Christmas. You've been planning and thinking about the meals, going to the honey-baked ham company, getting that Christmas ham ready, presents wrapped and put under the tree, all for the joy and the excitement and the anticipation of being with those you were waiting for that you love. Well, what was that like when they finally arrived? Probably hugs, kisses, embracing, celebration, excitement, photos taken to capture the moment, and then immediately posted to social media for others to share in that moment with you. And you, were, you were ready for that joyful moment of reunion and celebration. Well, what kind of welcome would Jesus, the long-awaited and promised Messiah of Israel, what kind of welcome did he receive when he finally showed up and arrived on the scene, born there in Bethlehem? Well, let's look at Luke chapter 2 and find out. Go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Verses 1 through 14, we've already read through the passage this morning, so we'll turn there and jump into our sermon this morning. If you need to use the Bible right in front of you, please use that. The best way to stay engaged in our sermon is to open up a copy of God's Word. You can take that Bible in front of you and turn to page 857, page 857, Luke chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 14 
this morning. We plan to be in 15 through 20 tonight. So we've got a sequel tonight. I hope you'll join us at 5 p.m. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Let me go ahead and give you the main idea of this passage, the main idea that I want you to see as we look at this passage this morning. The humble birth of Jesus displays God's power to accomplish his purposes. It's the main idea of what we see here. The humble birth of Jesus displays God's power to accomplish his purposes. Now, we're not just here in Luke for Christmas. We're going through the entire book. That's the plan, at least. We started a couple weeks ago in Luke chapter 1. The plan is to go throughout the gospel of Luke until we finish the book of Luke. So that's where we plan to be for the rest of winter and into the spring. And we saw as Luke's gospel began, two miraculous events. An old barren woman named Elizabeth conceived and a young virgin woman named Mary conceived. Those things aren't natural. They're supernatural. Only God could bring that about. And therefore, even leading up to their birth, there weren't things that were normal that happened. We saw that the messenger angel Gabriel, he showed up on the scene and he prophesied, he proclaimed who these children would be. That Elizabeth, she would conceive a boy and she was to name him John. John the Baptist. He would be the forerunner for the long-promised Messiah, paving the way for Israel to receive their forever king. And then the angel Gabriel showed up to this young virgin Mary living in Nazareth, an obscure place, to tell her some confusing news at first. Though she was a virgin, she was betrothed to Joseph, meaning that arrangements were being made for them to fully be married and fully united as husband and wife, yet as a young not yet married woman and a virgin, she would conceive. She would bear a son. His name would be Jesus. The Lord saves is what that name means. He would be a great and mighty king that would come to reign on King David's throne, to rule forever over Israel. Both of these situations were only brought about by God's power. They weren't natural. They were supernatural, showing something otherworldly was breaking into creation. And here in Luke chapter 2, we read of the birth of Jesus. John's already been born at this point, and here comes the birth of Jesus. And as we look at the humble circumstances surrounding his birth, we see the power of God to fulfill his promises. There's two scenes that we're going to break up our passage into this morning for Ireland. Verses 1 through 7, we see the first scene, a divine arrangement. The divine arrangement in verses 1 through 7, and a second scene in verses 8 through 14, a heavenly announcement. A divine arrangement and a heavenly announcement. Let's look first at verses 1 through 7, a divine arrangement. Now, I remember the preparations for each of our kids. We've got four kids. I remember the arrangements that were being made before their birth. Uh, Even as a guy and a first-time dad, I didn't realize how many arrangements there'd be. I didn't realize we needed to pick out a theme for our nurse. I didn't know there were themes. I thought you just painted it blue or pink, right? But there were themes. There were lots of materials that needed to be purchased. Uh, Even when we traveled for Christmas back then, I was reminded of everything you needed, a pack and play and a stroller and a jog stroller and this and this and that. And all of our room got taken up very quickly because there were so many arrangements and preparations made for these little babies. Well, what kind of arrangements were made for Jesus. He was no ordinary baby. 
the long-awaited promised Messiah and King coming to reign over Israel. You would think that this would be a grand event, lots of arrangements planned, parades, celebrations, festivals that would outdo anything that you might have seen in the Old Testament. And that's what happened, right? But not according to Luke chapter 2, at least not on a human level. But we read here in Luke 2, God made sure, He clearly made arrangements to prepare the way for Jesus, His Son. We see in the first seven verses that God made arrangements for where Jesus was to be born. Every detail mattered. You see, the prophets looked forward to the day that Jesus would come, and therefore there were types of credentials, if you will, given by the Old Testament prophets. I've even heard it referred to as a specific address, so you could know, here's the one. You wouldn't have to be mistaken or wonder, is this the Messiah? He's going to fulfill all these Old Testament prophecies. So we see a chain of events here in Luke 2 that God himself orchestrated the events of history to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, this little town, in order for Jesus to be born there. Mary, if you recall, she was living in Nazareth. Well, Jesus couldn't be born in Nazareth. Why this little town of Bethlehem? Well, this was the town prophesied in the Old Testament to be the birthplace of the Messiah. Let me read from the Old Testament from the prophet Micah. He prophesied that the long-awaited Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Joseph and Mary couldn't give birth in Nazareth. They needed to get to Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah was to be born, and that's how it happened. Read in verse 4 that Joseph and Mary traveled from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. All right, now think about this. Nazareth to Bethlehem, four-day journey, almost a hundred miles. Ladies, for Mary, at the end of her pregnancy, four days. Maybe she was on a donkey. Maybe some of it was on foot. 100 miles traveling back then. Not even as comfortable today, but who among you would want to travel at the very end of your pregnancy? You probably wouldn't even want to get on a plane to do that for a couple of hours. In other words, this was a long and difficult journey. And doesn't God often use long and difficult journeys in the lives of His people to bring about something good? And that's what He did here in Bethlehem. We see here the significance of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was the city of David. King David, the, the great king of Israel, his hometown. Bethlehem was the royal city. Now, the announcement from the angel Gabriel that we saw him make to Mary back in the end of chapter 1 was that the baby in her womb would come to reign as king, as a king in the line of David, that the Lord God would give to him the throne of his father David, that Jesus would reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom, there would be no end. God's covenant to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that there would be a king that would reign on his throne forever, was being fulfilled in Jesus. And therefore, he was to be born in the royal city of Bethlehem. Now, we can be sure again, Luke, he was a physician. 
He's also a historian. He provides lots of details here. And we looked at the beginning of chapter 1, his purpose of writing, that you may be certain about the truth of God in Jesus Christ. The credentials given in the Old Testament, we can be sure that Jesus fits the credentials given for Messiah, even all the way down to the place that Jesus was born in. That little town of Bethlehem is where King Jesus had to be born. So how did Mary and Joseph end up in Bethlehem? I know, maybe they walked, maybe they were on a donkey. But look at what the text tells us here. Humanly speaking, by a decree from Caesar Augustus. Now, in that time, the Romans occupied, and they ruled really in Israel and an entire Mediterranean region. The people of Israel, they were in their own land, but they were in captivity there, being held captive by foreign occupiers. And part of this captivity that we see here is that the Romans collected taxes from all who were under their rule. And so this decree by Caesar Augustus required everyone to travel to their ancestral hometown in order to be registered for the purpose of paying taxes. Now Bethlehem was the ancestral home of Jesus's earthly father, Joseph. We read that at the end of verse 4 that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. So in keeping with this decree from Caesar Augustus, they went to Bethlehem to be registered. Now when you read this, at first glance, it may seem like Caesar Augustus is the one calling shots here. I think Luke does this intentionally. He's setting up a, a contrast between the king of the world, at that time Caesar Augustus, And the king of kings who came down from heaven, Jesus. It looked like on a human level, on the surface, Caesar Augustus, he's got the power. He's got the authority. He's the one calling the shots. He's far more terrifying than any threat of the IRS. If you don't go to your hometown to be registered, that could be the end of your life. Rebellion against the king of the world. But was Caesar the one who was in control? Rather, Caesar's decree was God's divine plan to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. His decree was just what God used on a human level to set into motion the events of Christmas and the greatest gift the world has ever received. You see, these details we read concerning the birth of Jesus display this truth that God is ultimately in control. He reigns and rules above everything and everyone. And even while someone as powerful at that time as Caesar was exercising his rule, his rule was underneath the rule of the Most High God. God was exercising his sovereign and all-powerful rule to bring about salvation to his people through the birth of Jesus. And God used a pagan emperor to bring about his plan for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. All of this, all these details here, they are a display of of God's power, of His wisdom, of His plan. And here at the birth of Jesus, we find another story in the pages of the Bible that highlight God's providence. We've thought about this on a number of occasions, the the providence of, of God. And I've referred back to the Heidelberg Catechism, which answers the question, question 27, what is the providence of God? 
to sum up that question, simply put, the providence of God is this, all things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Meaning God is at work in all of the details around us. Simply put, God's providence means that God is good and God is in control. You put those together, that's the providence of God. God governs and He sovereignly orchestrates all of human history to bring about His good purposes. He's sovereign over everything and He's good. Now, brother and sister in the Lord, it's important for us to be reminded of God's providence as we look at the Scriptures. Just as God governed all of the details over the history of the birth of Jesus, it's important to be reminded, Christian, God governs all of the details of your story. You can look back at that. We call that a testimony. We see how how God worked in the events of our life to cross our paths with someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ in us, how He worked in our hearts, softening our hearts, preparing us to receive the seed of the good news of Jesus Christ, and bringing about fruit through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But sometimes we forget that once we become Christians. We forget how good God was to bring us to Himself. And we start to get caught up in the worries and the trials of life. We start to live with anxious thoughts and worries of, will God provide for us in the future? Our anxiety tends to imagine the worst possible outcomes and situations. Tends to wrongly imagine where God isn't there for us in the future, providing for us and what we need. This story of Christmas reminds us of God's providence. He is good. He is in control. And He is orchestrating all of the events of your life, Christian, to bring Himself glory and to bring you joy. I've heard it said that at any given time, God is doing 10,000 things in your life, and you and I might recognize three of them. He's so good. He's at work. We can trust Him. Christian, I wonder what God is doing in your life right now that you're not aware of. I wonder what good plan He's unfolding in your life that you've not yet seen. Anybody can be cynical. Anybody can be skeptical. But Christians are given this gift called hope where we can rightly imagine a future where God continues to provide and continues to care for us. And it's not just wishful thinking, it's hopeful thinking that's rooted in Christmas and the cross of Jesus Christ, His resurrection from the dead, His ascension up to heaven reigning right now, and the certainty of a second coming. Brother and sister, maybe this Christmas, a wonderful prayer request to pray for your own soul. Lord, fill me with hope once again. Renew me with hope that's found in your promises. Hope that believes in Christ, the best is yet to come. What's impressive in this story of the birth of Jesus are the arrangements that God made for the birth of Jesus. What's unimpressive is the lack of arrangements on a human level. Jesus' birth was not the reception that you would expect for the arrival of a long-awaited king. And had it not been for the Lord, there would have been no welcome 
for this king. Look at verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. There was no place prepared. There was no room for Jesus, the king of kings. And, and some biblical scholars point to that moment as the beginning of his rejection. He came down to earth, and rather than a reception, immediately a rejection, no room for him. Now, I know our, our Christmas plays, they often have in it an, an innkeeper. You get a knock, and the innkeeper says, there's no room in the inn. Now, we don't read that in the Bible, right? That maybe fitting for a Christmas play, but it's not in the Bible, which reminds us, let's look carefully at what's actually in the Bible. Let's, let's know what's in the pages of God's Word. And what we read here, it may not have actually been an inn at all, at least in the way that you and I commonly think of it. This very well may have been a guest chamber or a guest room connected to one of the homes of Joseph's relatives. What is clear here, wherever they were, it was a place where animals stayed. It was an animal quarters of a home. Now, it was common in that time at night when it got cold outside, just at night period, to bring those animals inside to these kind of quarters that were connected to a house. And we see this is where the animals were because the baby Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes and he was laid in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. Now, now, new dads, if you were to show your wives when they brought the babies home, here's where we're going to put the little one. Here, here's a little feeding trough I bought at the Home Depot. It was a lot cheaper than those cribs they sell for 500 bucks. It's a feeding trough. It'll get the job done. That wouldn't fly. It's not a place fitting for your baby. And it really wasn't a place fitting for the baby Jesus either. He was resting in a place where animals ate. Hardly the arrangement you would expect for a king. Consider the difference of what Jesus was worthy of and what he received. At the very beginning of his time on earth, we see the humility of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This was the birth of a king, one that the angel Gabriel had promised that this baby would be great, that God would give him David's throne, that he would reign and rule forever over God's people in Israel, and yet this baby had a humble entrance. And all of that was just the way that God had planned it. The exaltation of Jesus wouldn't come at his birth. That was yet to come. One scholar put it like this, for Jesus to come down to earth and become a man, it was not an honor. It was abject humility. It was infinite condescension. And his birth reflected what the course of his whole life would be, rejected by the ones he came to save, then and still today. Jesus left the riches of heaven, sapphire-paved courts for a stable floor. The eternal Son of God came down in humility. He came down to earth and entered the world, just like you and I did, as a tiny little baby, he could have saved us whatever way he wanted to save us. God was not bound to a specific plan. He determined the plan of salvation. He could have saved us from afar, but rather God chose to send his son to draw near to us, to save us up close, if you will. His humble entrance in a manger continued on 
to a humiliating ending, a feeding trough would end dying on a Roman cross, being publicly executed, treated as a public criminal, though he'd done no wrong, despised and rejected, but he willingly went to die on that cross. And while people were at work for evil, God was at work the whole time for His glory and for our good, sending Jesus as a payment for sin. The only one qualified to be a substitute. So step in our place. He lived the life we couldn't live. He received the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin against the God who created us. He willingly laid his life down. He suffered and died and was rejected on a Roman cross. But that wasn't the end of the story. That was his final act of humiliation. The exaltation came on that third day, that Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the dead, proving he is who he said he was, the long-awaited Messiah, the promised king. He came to die and save, and he came to rise again from the dead. This Jesus is the one who drew near that we might know God. And the question I have for you, have you received this gift? Have you received the greatest gift of knowing God through faith in Jesus? Well, the second scene we find in this passage, verses 8 through 14, a heavenly announcement. Starts off with not much recognition, but God made sure that this moment in history didn't go by unnoticed. Verses 8 through 14, we see a heavenly announcement. There may not initially have been a welcome from people when Jesus was born, but that changed with a glorious announcement from heaven to earth by an angel of the Lord. So the celebration of the birth of Jesus started in heaven and came down to earth. We see in verse 8, the original recipients of the gospel that Christ the Lord is born, it came to shepherds out in the field at night watching over their flock. Shepherds were not men of high social standing. Lowly shepherds, though, they were the ones that God chose to be the first recipients of the good news of Jesus Christ, showing that this good news is for all the people. And in verse 9, when the angel of the Lord appeared and the glory of the Lord shone around him and filled the darkness of the night, we see they were filled with great fear. We mentioned back in chapter 1, when angels showed up on the scene, there was fear. You might wonder, why were they afraid? This was like the moment we sing about at Christmas. It's an awesome moment. I would have loved to have seen that in person. No, you wouldn't have. You would have been terrified just like them. When the heavenly breaks on and down into earth, you're overwhelmed by the glory of God being reflected by those heavenly beings. But there was good reason for them not to be afraid. This angel brought news of great joy for all the people, referring to all the people of Israel. The gospel came first to them and then would spread out to the nations. Look at verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Think about this as good news being announced, but it's also reporting something. It's what news does. It reports what has happened or is happening. And here in this report, we find important details about who Jesus is and what he came to do. 
In verse 11, we find three titles that proclaim who Jesus is and what he came to do. Savior, Christ, Lord. Savior, what he came to do. Christ, Lord, who is he? Who is this promised king? Now, these are the highest titles that can possibly be given. You think about common titles in our day. President. It's a high title in the United States. President doesn't compare to Savior, Christ, and Lord. The king or queen. There's a new king crowned in England, a new queen. That's something that people are, are buzzing about, waiting to see what happened, waiting to get photos of that service. King, queen, your honor. Think about any titles we know. They don't compare to Savior, Christ, and Lord. None come close to the exaltation associated with these titles in verse 11 given to Jesus. Let's take a look at them. First, this babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, again, lying in a feeding trough. That baby is the Savior. A Savior is one who delivers from grave danger. A Savior is a deliverer. What did Jesus come to do? Well, if you ask the average person in Charlotte, they'll probably say something like, well, he came to inspire people. Jesus came to be a good teacher. Jesus came to be a good example and show you how to live a good... Well, that's not what this verse says. That's not right answers. He came to save. He came to die. He he was the only one qualified to be a savior. He he didn't come merely to be a good example or teacher. He did not come merely to show us how to live a good life. He came as the savior to deliver and to rescue us from the oppression of our sin against God, to save us against God's righteous wrath and judgment against sin. The purpose of Christmas is for sinners to be saved by Jesus. Now, Israel had known many deliverers throughout her history. You can go back and Read the Old Testament book of Judges. Judges were deliverers who came and delivered God's people from their oppressors. And here came Jesus as the ultimate Savior to deliver Israel from the oppression of sin. This babe in the manger, furthermore, so we see here what Jesus came to do. He came as the Savior. But the next two titles, Christ and and Lord, they declare who this Savior is. The babe in the manger is the Christ, which is Greek for Messiah, God's anointed one. What Israel had been waiting for for centuries had arrived as a tiny little baby in a manger in Bethlehem. And this little baby Jesus is Christ the Lord. The third title there of the babe in the manger, Lord, is the word used to translate God's covenant name. A Lord is a title of deity. In other words, this baby is God. God in the flesh. Now, this is the first time in the Bible that Christ and Lord are brought together to refer to one person. The Messiah is God, God in the flesh. Now, imagine these shepherds. They were just out in the field at night doing their job, working the, the late shift, tending their flock. They received this terrifying sight and then joyful and overwhelming news. And before they even had time to process exactly what was going on and being said, the confirmation of this news came by a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. A host is an army. So an army of angels forming a choir to sing to these shepherds. Now most songs go from earth to heaven. We've seen a couple of songs so far in the Gospel of Luke. 
right? We've seen Zechariah's song back in chapter 1 that, that went up to heaven. We see chapter 2, uh, excuse me, rather back in chapter 1, Mary sang a beautiful song back in chapter 1 from earth to heaven. We sang some beautiful Christmas carols this morning here on earth that we understand God heard and received His praise up in heaven. That's the way singing normally works. But here in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, we read of a song that came from heaven down to earth, from angels, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, down to shepherds in Israel. These angels who were singing throughout eternity past, glorifying God, left heaven for a brief tour for a small audience to perform as the first Christmas choir to these shepherds in Israel. And we read their lyrics in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He's pleased. Peace. You know, when my wife and I first started decorating our home at Christmas, we'd start talking about what we wanted our home to look like over the years, and we just said, you know, if someone were to come into our house, and somehow they didn't know what Christmas was about, which actually has happened. We've had some foreign exchange students who've come into our house and not know what Christmas is about. We'd want them to be able to look at the decorations and be able to piece together what it is that we're celebrating. And one of my favorite phrases at Christmas is what we see here in this passage, peace on earth. We've got that on several Christmas ornaments and signs in our house. I, I would love for someone to come in and peace on earth. Like, what is that about? Peace on earth, especially as we see about so much war on earth and, and so many horrific sights that fill news clips. Peace on earth is what God was being praised for. Now, keep in mind, during this Roman occupation of Israel, Jesus came to earth during a period of time known historically as Pax Romana, Roman peace. Caesar Augustus was being praised as one who brought peace to earth. What these angels are doing, again, contrasting the king of the world to the king of the universe. Caesar's being praised for peace on earth that he brought for a very temporary period of time. Let's be honest, there wasn't a whole lot of peace for people living in Israel during that time. The king of kings would bring a peace that would last forever. And some people may look at this and they may get confused. Well, if Jesus is the Messiah and he brought peace on earth, why are we seeing such terrible sights in the Ukraine? Well, why are we seeing such terrible sights even in Israel and Gaza today? If Jesus was the Messiah, why aren't we seeing peace on earth. Well, this peace, first and foremost, that Jesus brought was a vertical peace. Be sure, at His second coming, horizontal peace is sure to come finally and forever. But at His first coming, the peace that He brought was a peace between God and man, a peace that you and I need because we've sinned against the God who created us. It's a spiritual peace of having your sin forgiven, sin moved out of the way so that you could be at peace with God, in other words, reconciled to Him, forgiven of your sin, living in a loving relationship with God. This little baby in a manger in Bethlehem came to save. He's Christ the Lord. He came as the Prince of Peace. But listen closely to what these angels sang. This peace is not for everyone. It's not what they sang. What they say? And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Which begs the question, well, how do you please God? I'm glad you asked that question. Write this down. Hebrews chapter 11, 
Verse 6, a wonderful answer to this question. Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. And without faith in Jesus, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. To put your faith in Jesus, to repent of your sin against God, is to know peace with God. It's to be at the end of this war against God. It's to have his righteous judgment against you satisfied all by Jesus, which begs the question, the most important question you could ask at Christmas, have you welcomed Jesus? Is he pleased with you? Have you received Jesus and God's gift of salvation by faith? Or are you so preoccupied with your busy life, just like the majority of the people in Bethlehem, that you missed the greatest gift the world has ever seen? The announcement's been made. Preparation's been given. If you're here this morning and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, what more do you need? I wonder what's keeping you from putting your faith in Jesus today. Something you could do right now. Ask God to forgive you of your sin. You would turn and put your faith in Jesus. If that's you and you want to know more about that, talk with someone who brought you today. That might be your parent. That might be a relative. might be a fellow church member. Talk to any of our pastors at the door. We'd love to talk to you about receiving the greatest gift of Christmas. Christmas is an opportunity to consider the best news the world has ever received. Jesus Christ is Lord. He came to die. He came to save. And as we've reflected this morning on who Jesus is and what he came to do, may we know that Christmas is not merely about a day to celebrate, but about a person to be adored. What happened with these shepherds when they received this news? Stay tuned. 5 p.m. tonight, verses 15 through 20. Let's bow and pray. Father in heaven, we come this morning as those who've heard this good news. Lord, some of us here have believed this good news for a long time, and we pray for those who've already put our faith in Jesus that we'd be comforted this morning. We pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd renew us in hope in Jesus. And for any who are here this morning who don't yet know you, we pray you'd work in their hearts to receive this gift of life, and forgiveness of sins, and free righteousness from your throne, found only through your Son Jesus and through faith in Him. Lord, help us to rejoice in your goodness to us and your love to us in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.